Okay, everybody, if you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. Okay, so I, I hope this won't backfire, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try something here as we begin. What, what's going to happen is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a song, and if you know the song, I want you to sing along, okay? It's a very sacred and important song. All right, you ready? There's 104 days of summer vacation just to end it. And the annual problem of our... I heard harmony, actually, on that. That was amazing. So that's the theme song from the cartoon Phineas and Ferb, which I have told you before, I think is the best children's show of all time. I love it. Um, and it's called Phineas and Ferb after the two main characters, but I think the best part of the show isn't really about them. It's about Dr. Heinz Doofenshmirtz, who is this scientist who's the evil villain in, in the show, only he's not really evil and he's not really a, a villain. He's just a really sensitive guy from a dysfunctional family, and he's very over, overly dramatic and eccentric and kind of clueless. I have a lot in common with this, with this person. Um, and Doofenshmirtz is, in my opinion, a great villain. He's like a killer villain. He's the best because he's not trying to take over the entire world. He's just trying to take over the tri-state area, right? <laughs> just, you know, because we need achievable goals in life. Um, and Doofenshmirtz heads up his own company. It's called Doofenshmirtz Evil Incorporated, right? Yeah, like you know the jingle, right? <laughs> Every time. And his lair is like a high-rise office building, like a corporate office space that he apparently owns and rents out to other people. And um, in every episode, he creates a new innator, which is sort of like a ray gun designed to make people do somewhat innocuous but disruptive things like the slow motion innator or the misbehave-inator or the gloominator, which he shoots, and it just makes people kind of depressed and sad. Um, and, and his nemesis, of course, is a guy named Agent Perry the Platypus, whose cover story is that he's Phineas and Ferb's pet platypus, but he's really this government agent who is keeping an eye on this evil villain. And, and once every, every episode, of course, Phineas says, hey, where's Perry, right? See, and every time Doofen, Doofenshmirtz makes one of these innators, Perry the platypus shows up to thwart his, his plan, but Doofenshmirtz always catches him. He has some sort of trap to, to like lock him down. But after a few episodes, you realize something, that um, Doofenshmirtz doesn't lock down or capture Perry the platypus so he can go ahead with his evil scheme. He's already built his innator almost every time. Like he's, he's already ready to go. He, he catches Perry the platypus so that he can tell him his backstory in his life. <laughs> it's, it's the reason he does it. In almost every episode, he has some sort of elaborate backstory that he's dying to tell somebody. So he catches Perry the platypus and, and tells him why he's made his shrinkinator or duplicate-inator. He has these elaborate backstories that are like the best part of the show. It's my favorite thing. And every episode, he makes one of these innators, and then he catches Perry the platypus so that he can tell him about his story, about his past. 
And, and, and this is meant to explain why, even as an adult, he's doing these, these sort of evil plans, right? And you very, very quickly catch on to the fact that Duvenschmertz is just dying for somebody to listen to his stories about what a messed up childhood he had and how he made this innator to make sure that will never happen again. I'm telling you, this show is as good as therapy. Like, <laughs> highly recommend it. You just watch this guy, and, and you're totally aware that what the character is doing is telling these backstories that expose the ways in which, like, the traumatic events of his past have shaped his core narrative, who he is. And they explain the behaviors of the present day for him. And, of course, as you're watching this, hopefully, like, kind of unconsciously, we're realizing this is true for all of us. This is what we all do. We all have these backstories that we tell ourselves and each other about what has happened in our life. And, and we all have these, these kind of foundational stories that shape the way we see life and the world and what it means to be human and ourselves. And they, they um, serve as explanations for why we are the way we are. And at a very basic level, what we're talking about here is this is how humans make meaning. This is how we do it. All meaning making is storytelling. Point blank. That's how we do it. The way we interpret the events of our lives is through the imposition of a narrative. We tell stories full stop. And so the stories that we tell are incredibly powerful. Our stories will determine the meaning that we make out of our lives. The stories we, we tell ourselves and each other, will define the limits of what is possible and impossible in the world, what is happening to us and why and how we should respond. That's, that's just the, the way it goes. And over time, we, we sort of gravitate toward a few core narratives, sort of the same set of stories that we tell ourselves over and over that help us to make meaning of the events of our lives. These are our core narratives. And many of our core narratives were um, sort of formed as an adaptive response to like a bad plot twist in our own lives. So like, for, for example, a, a core narrative for a, an adult might be, I, I can only rely on myself. I can't rely on any, any other people. They, and, and this may be because they had sort of like flaky parents or neglectful parents or just Parents who constantly stranded them or were just too broken to help. And so that story, I can only rely on myself, became this core narrative that's really just an adaptive response to a, a bad plot twist. And, and it helped them survive a difficult childhood. But now it sort of prevents them from things they want, like being able to trust their friends or coworkers or, or be, be able to find intimacy or, or vulnerability in their relationships. And so what happens is, as, as we get older, usually hits around midlife, although I have to say, um, out of my, like, whatever, 25, 30 years of doing ministry, in the last eight or 10 years, it seems to be happening much more often in your 20s and 30s. Generally, it's a midlife, though. Um, the stories we've been telling ourselves that work so well to this point that help us kind of get through the strange plot twists in our lives, those core narratives start to turn on us and they start to work against us. 
they limit our ability to change and grow. They can prevent us from moving on in life. They can blind us to some of our own issues and problems and patterns, and we get stuck. We, we, we bog down, and, and then we, we start enacting these kind of frustrating patterns of dysfunction and immaturity, and we just keep playing and replaying these things in our lives because they're our core narratives. And they help us survive an earlier phase of life, but they've become sort of a roadblock to change and growth. And they've begun to, you know, cause problems in our relationships and our pursuits. And um, this, is, this is life on earth as human people. I share this one quote with you guys at least uh, once or twice a year. I try to anyway, because it's so powerful. It's by one of my favorite writers, Rebecca Solnit. She says this about stories. Stories are compasses in architecture. We navigate by them. We build our sanctuaries and our prisons out of them. Stories are geography. It's pretty, it's pretty solid. Stories are like architecture. They can be like prisons or they can be like sanctuaries. And a bad story is a kind of a prison. It can just like lock us up and box us in and limit our freedom and torment us or, or punish us. We can become trapped within our own core narratives. I mean, think about the word prison. It connotes this idea of being kind of locked down and not free and, and punished. And, and so what we're longing for then is escape from our own story, our life. And a good story is like a sanctuary, she says. It can make us feel safe and protected. You think about the word sanctuary, it, just, it connotes this idea of safe harbor, protection, even a sense of the divine, you know, some kind of connection, encounter with the divine. It's, it's not a bad way to think about our own lives. Like, just what, what does your life feel more like, a, a prison or a sanctuary? Or, you know, a bit of both. The, the kind of story that we tell about life and the world and what it means to be human, it will determine whether we're living in a kind of prison or a sanctuary. And we're all kind of constantly trying to do what Doofenshmirtz does. We're, we're trying to lock each other down for long enough that we can tell our stories to one another. I mean, the vast majority of human conversation is just storytelling. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, it's most of what we talk about when we hang out together and talk. We just, we're constantly telling our stories to, to each other just to try to bring our own experience to speech in, and share our lives with another person. But, and as we do this, we're also asking for help on our stories. Like, it, I'm not crazy, right? Or tell me if I'm seeing this correctly. Am I missing something? Or just share and this something that was hilarious or, or amazing or really awful and, and difficult, right? Just share in the joy of it, in the pain of it. We tell our stories. And so we, we don't just share them and tell them to people. We work on them together. And one of the ma main ways that we do this is we try to locate our particular story within a larger story about the world. Or as Solnit says, stories are compasses. Stories are geography. We navigate the world by the stories that we tell, right? We're constantly trying to fit our own personal story into uh, a larger story that can help us interpret what's happening in our story. Their stories are like geography, right? They help us map 
where we are in life. And, what, and once we've mapped it in that larger story, then those stories kind of become um, like guides and, and sort of compasses. And so we navigate by the stories. And, and we, you know, we think, you know, this story can help me understand what's, what's happening here in this confusing or exhilarating moment, right? It tells us when to take chances and when to play it safe, when to be vulnerable or keep our distance, when to, you know, how to discern right from wrong or good from evil. Stories help us orient ourselves in the world and then kind of plot our course. And, and part of what I think this reveals is that at a very basic human level, perhaps the deepest level for human beings, our desire is not to like be part of a belief system or a set of principles or policies or ideologies or doctrines, but to be part of a shared story. That's what we want. A story that can help us make sense of the world and our lives. We want to see our story as part of a larger story, part of how we come to believe that our lives actually matter. We gravitate toward these big overarching stories. And you think about how many of our interactions at church involve some kind of storytelling. It's most of what we do when we gather together. We tell and retell the story of God, and then we share our own stories or snapshots of them before and after, even in the middle of worship. And as we do this, we're trying to locate our story in this larger story of God, trying to make sense of our own experience. And, and so in, in a general sense, but in a very particular sense for Redemption Church, to be part of this community is to share a common story. And this is a deep human need to share our stories and locate them within a larger story about life and the world and what it means to be human. And if we cannot do this, you guys, if we cannot do this, we suffer. And here's what I think. And this is the origin, I think, of much of our quirkiness. We're in a series called Quirks, right? This is the origin of much of our quirkiness. We are living at a time in which many of the stories we were handed by our teachers, our mentors, our pastors, our parents, institutions, leaders, both our core narratives as people and, and sort of the overarching narratives. We're living at a time when those stories aren't working anymore. They don't, they don't fit the terrain of our lives. And they're starting to work against us, limiting our ability to change and grow and, and preventing us from sort of faithfully responding to the issues of our day almost blinding us to the issues and problems. And so we're, we're suffering. These frustrating patterns of like dysfunction and immaturity just keep playing and replaying in our society, in our own lives. And our stories come to function more like prisons than sanctuaries. These old maps that we were given of the world, they just don't match up with our experience of reality. And it's like the ground has shifted and the maps haven't kept up or the, the compass is malfunctioning and pointing the wrong way. And when this happens, we suffer. We struggle to find 
a way to make meaning in our lives. Remember, all, all meaning-making is storytelling, full stop. And so these overarching stories begin breaking down, and then huge aspects of culture and faith that we used to be able to take for granted, right? They have to be reconsidered and reformulated, and there's all this conflict around that. And so we struggle to connect with other people and to connect with our own story even and to find a way to connect that story to a larger narrative that helps us make sense of it. And so what we find, especially those of us who who are seeking after God and trying to be Christians, um, the faith of our parents and our grandparents that they could just sort of effortlessly rely on seems at times to almost be um, working against us. It doesn't really work. And so we're living in this time of deep disorientation as a church and a society. Anybody else feel that? And for many of us, there's a deep pain involved. And this is, this is hard for me to talk about because like, I've leveraged my whole life for the church, but I think it's important for pastors to confess this kind of stuff, so I'm just going to say it. that it, It's difficult for many of us as we kind of see our church mentors and, and people who were like, led us to faith, who taught us the story of God, they now seem to be telling almost a completely different story. One that's determined by politics and power and racism and sexism and violence. It's more determined by culture wars than the story of God. And then there are these these mega churches and kind of celebrity pastors who are presiding over churches that seem to have totally missed the whole purpose of the church. They were more like political rallies, you know, marketed to people who think, you know, pro wrestling is real and NASA is fake, you know, or they're like pyramid schemes, part of the, the um, what do you call it, the go- um, prosperity gospel, like pyramid schemes with a coffee bar and free Wi-Fi. And, and we feel estranged from that, right? There's like this distance. It doesn't feel like our story anymore. It's terribly disorienting. And it leaves us kind of untethered. Like, where, where do we belong? I don't feel part of that. I thought I would always feel part of that. It's horrible. We're talking about quirks, right, of Redemption Church. And this is, this is one of our quirks. It's the fourth one we're talking about. It's that we pay close attention to narrative and story as we try to allow our lives to be defined by the story of God. And so one of the quirks is we don't tell the story of God just to reinforce the beliefs we already have. We read the story to call those beliefs into question. This is very quirky. Um, We don't use the story of God like a weapon to win the culture wars because we're looking for a story that is true, right? That can make us true. That's how you tell if a story is true. It makes us true. It makes us truly human as human was meant to be. And, And because of that, it helps us make sense of our lives while telling the truth about it and not deceiving ourselves. That's a huge key. Most churches, that's just what they do. They, they allow, allow you to not tell the truth, hide it, or they let you just deceive yourselves. And we're trying to learn how to tell the truth, but find a story that can help us like, 
find, make some meaning. I feel like most of my job when I'm teaching is this. It's just to try to poke a tiny little hole in the story that we tell ourselves about life and the world and what it means to be human. And almost no matter what that story is at any given time, just make a little cut, a little, little hole in that story. Because what I believe is that that tiny cut is how God breaks in to the world and starts to re-narrate our life. I mean, God is, God is always that which is impossible. And so anytime we can make a little cut or just a little kind of hole in the story we tell about the world and ourselves and what it means to be human about what is possible and impossible in the world, that the little ray of light that shines through that hole, this is the divine. One of the great conversation partners we've had in this over the years is an Old Testament theologian named Walter Brueggemann. And Brueggemann has had a profound impact on our church. Literally, his name is all the passwords to the public things around here, Um, which is like Freudian if I've ever heard anything happen like that. Um, About 15 years ago, um, Brueggemann wrote and published what he called his 19 Theses, about the Christian faith in our time. It's kind of a working draft of his convictions that he's formed over a lifetime of doing um, scholarship and ministry. And they're focused on story and our core narratives in church and society. And um, every, every year or two, I try to just bring out the first 10 of them because they've really shaped the way Redemption Church sees itself and and what we're kind of narrates what we're actually doing as a church. So I'm gonna I'm gonna run through these ten with us real quick. The first one is, he says, everybody lives by a script. It may be implicit or explicit, recognized or unrecognized, but everybody lives by a story that functions like a script, a, a narrative that sort of narrates our actions, like Doofenshmirtz a cultural, family, professional, religious story that acts like a script, and everybody lives by a script. Two, we are scripted by a process of nurture, formation, and socialization. We're constantly being scripted all the time by the people and culture around us. Some of it is intentional, some of it is incidental, but for the most part, it's happening without our knowing about it. This is constantly happening. We're lar- this is key. We're largely oblivious to our own scripting. Three, the dominant script in our society is a script of individualism, consumer capitalism, and nationalism that socializes us all, liberal and conservative. These, these are the unholy trinity. I talk about them a lot. Individualism just dominates our culture. Consumer capitalism reduces everything to its monetary value and then sends that value to the top. Nationalism makes Christianity subordinate to the state and co-ops what's meant to be a peaceful religion and makes it substantiate militarism and, and, and violence and demands that we pledge our allegiance to it. Four, this script enacted through Advertising, propaganda, ideology, and the liturgies, he says, of television and mass media. This script promises to make us safe and happy. 
So the script is everywhere. It pervades public and private spaces. It's just kind of pumped into our bodies through media and culture and all the stories that our culture tells. And, and this story promises immunity from every threat that threatens us. You know, all we have to do is just agree to watch the ads for cars and beers and deodorants and drugs, right? And don't worry so much about the homelessness or racism or wars or the destruction of the environment. Just keep buying these things and supporting this system and you'll be safe and happy. I mean, I'm always reminded of the example of this when after 9-11, the president said, go shopping. Right? That, that's this. That's the script. And then here comes, here comes Brueggemann's twist. Um, number five, that script has failed. It cannot make us safe and happy, no matter how faithful we are to it. In fact, we might be the most unhappiest society in the world. We are measurably the most overweight, anxious, addicted, medicated and dysfunctional society. Our script, our script has failed. It's not making us safe and happy. It's become like a prison. And we're stuck inside it, just repeating the same dramas over and over, and it's destabilizing us and the world. This is why we feel disoriented. The story that we've been scripted in, it doesn't work. It's making us sick, and we're tearing each other apart. Okay, number six. Health, he says, for our society depends on our disengagement from and our relinquishment of that failed script. But this, he says, is a, is a disengagement and relinquishment about which we mostly are completely resistant. We don't want to do it, especially if we're well off, right? And the system rewards us. And about which we are profoundly ambiguous, he says. We're kind of fuzzy about it because our imaginations are so held, held so captive to that story. And so Brueggemann says, our health is dependent on this one thing. We have to disengage from a failed script. And, and then the question is, of course, how do we do that? So the next one, seven. It is the task of the church. That's what he says. It's the task of the church and its ministry to descript that script among us and detach us from its powerful hold on us. He says the, the task of the church is to enable persons to relinquish a world that no longer exists and indeed never did exist. The, the failed script is a ruse. The task of the church then is to dis detach us from that failed story and help other people do the same. Last three, really quickly. Eight, the task of descripting is accomplished by a steady, patient, intentional articulation of an alternative script that we say can make us safe and happy. Nine, this alternative script is rooted in the Bible and is enacted through the Christian tradition. So our job is to patiently articulate an alternative narrative that's rooted in, in the Bible and then to sort of enact that narrative, embody that narrative within the life of the church as we play with the tradition and carry it forward. And then 10, that script, this new script, has as its most distinctive feature 
and defining factor, the God of the Bible, who has been revealed most clearly through Jesus Christ. So our story comes from the Bible. It's about God, who has been revealed in Christ um, to be with us. And here's, here's kind of the Brueggemann twist. The story is not ideological. It's not like monolithic and one-dimensional or seamless. It's actually quite ragged and, and disjunctive and sometimes incoherent. I, I'm saying the Bible is filled with arguments and contradictions and people who disagree, right? But he says, this is, of course, how it has to be. I love this line. Brueggemann says, it has to be this way because it has been crafted over time by many committees. <laughs> it's perfect. And by a God who welcomes ragamuffin people who often get it wrong. And are getting it wrong is part of the story. Those are, those are his ten theses. Pre- pretty good, right? And this is, is really, I think, a great snapshot of what we're trying to do at Redemption Church. Just to relinquish these failed stories and patiently articulate a better story, the story of God, and to try to find a way to embody that story together as a church in our common life. And so we're just trying constantly embrace this new script defined by faith in Jesus Christ through an engagement with the scripture. That's why we, scripture is at the heart of everything we do here when we gather and paying attention to this long, rich tradition of our faith. That's what all the liturgy and church calendar stuff is about. And just try to see if we can't tell the story enough to where we start to believe that we're actually living in that story and that it's not a failed story. And this means that um, we agree to go through seasons of disorientation. We don't walk around acting like everything's fine here. Everything is not fine. Everything is jacked up. We go through seasons of disorientation. We just say this is normative for the believer. And, and, and then, then we say, but we, we will hope about a future and we will just keep faithing it all the way through. That's what we do. And, and our, our conviction is, and even I would say our experience is that over time we do actually come more fully alive. We start to be renewed in the image of God. We become human. This human was meant to be. And experience the disjunction and the disorientation, but also this sense of growing wholeness and flourishing and shalom. But this all hinges on our willingness to let go of a failed story and to learn how to slowly, patiently tell a better story and let our lives conform to that story. The text that we read earlier from the book of Deuteronomy comes from this book in which Moses, at the end of the Torah, just tells the whole story start to finish. He just goes over it all again. And then he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. And these commandments that I give you this this day are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads and write them on the door frames of your houses. 
in your gates. And, and then a little bit later in the chapter, we didn't read it, but he says, when your kids ask you why all this weird stuff, you tell them this story. Tell them the story. It will orient them in the world. Um, this passage is sometimes called the Shema um, because it begins, Hear, O Israel. That word in Hebrew, hear, is Shema. It just, it means, in, it's more like, listen. Listen to this story. Tell, tell the story of how God is with us. Write this story on your hearts, on your doorposts. Talk about it when you're walking along the road. Tie it, it says, as a symbol on your hands. That just means whatever you put your hands to, let that conform to this story. Bind them on your foreheads. Everything you think and say and imagine, let it draw from this story. And this is, this is really all we're trying to do as a church. Gather each week, we tell the story of God, and learn to tell it well, well enough that we kind of begin to know it by heart and then to enact that story in specific practices and, and so that we can allow that story to define, define us over and against any other rival story. Just tell it over and over. We become consumed with it. Not with the doctrines, not with piety, not with moralisms. We're consumed by the story, the whole thing. Because it's the only thing powerful enough to, to break us out of our prisons. I mean, have you ever noticed that the rules and commands in the Bible end up being the most disputed parts of the Bible? When the stories and narratives, everybody loves them. They're like water to a thirsty soul. Because that's where all the power is. It's rich layers of meaning that can tell us who we are and where we came from and where we're going. It's, it's geography. Our stories are like a compass. They help us tether the very confusing life we live to a larger story that's true. And it's true because it liberates us can make us human. And I, I really believe that as human beings, there's something about this story. There's a reason it has lasted. Our, we're designed to respond to it. That's why it's true. Very early on, as Chris and I were trying to describe what was happening to us, to our family and friends, when they were like, what? <laughs> have you started a cult? Like, what, is it, what exactly is happening here? And we we were quirky, and it was strange to our friends and mentors, and this is what we started saying. We were just like, we've switched stories. We're switching stories. That's what's happening. And we started to get the language of individ individualism, consumer capitalism, nationalism, militarism, violence. That's not our story. You have a better story. We're switching stories. That's what we're doing. And the way we do this, the way, the way we relinquish a failed script is to be consumed with a better one. We want to be defined by the story of God, which is a story of redemption. We believe this so much, we renamed our church Redemption in the middle of it. Redemption that comes by grace, grace which means endless second chances, and that happens to us through faith, which we've talked about is faithing. Faith is faithing. Walking in faith, we just become consumed by a better story, the story of God, a story of redemption that comes by grace through faithing. And this, this is one of our quirks. It's become the major preoccupation of Redemption Church for a good 15 years now. And we, um, we, as we do this, we become a pretty quirky place. 
we don't fit with everybody captivated by a different story. And we're still captivated by that story too. I mean, this is long, slow work. But I can promise, if you'll stick around for, like, I'm going to say a decade. That's on, that's on the short side. If you'll stick around, it takes about a decade. I'm not even kidding. You measure spiritual growth in decades. As you do this, though, if you'll stick around and just switch stories, the miracle will happen to you. And you'll begin to know. I mean, not like cognitively. You will know, experience in your body what it means to be human. And that life in the midst of these stories that are stories that are so broken and so they don't make sense and they're so hard that it can be tethered to a story that sustains us and we can find a way to flourish, right? Some of you who are in it right now, you know what I'm talking about. It is possible to come alive with a life that is truly life and it's tethered to this story, amen? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this story of God, the gospel, your story of how you came for us. And we just confess, God, the way that we're defined by the story of our culture. And we confess, God, the way um, the brokenness of our own story just weighs on our shoulders. But we look to you and we say, as we sang earlier, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. And I pray that you would unite our hearts around the telling of this story and that it would inspire in us hope and that we would find in its telling your power. to heal our broken hearts and to heal this broken world. That's our prayer. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand, please, and we're going to receive communion. And um, the way we do this, we just come forward row by row, and you'll be offered a, a plate of bread and a cup, and just take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say amen or say I will remember or respond just however you used to responding. We do this because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and and after supper broke it and passed this around to all his followers and then did the same thing with the cup. They all drank from the same common cup. And he said, whenever you get together, do this in remembrance of me. You, You eat this bread that is my body and you drink this cup that is my life my blood and you receive my life into your life and be made of the stuff I'm made out of and then go out into the world and let them feast on your lives and then come back the next week and do it all over again that's kind of, that's the rhythm this is what we do and so this is why we receive communion every week and why we invite just any ragamuffins to join us at the table so if you would pray with me Lord, we ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it be to us uh, 
means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. May you come and live inside us, make us new from the inside out, and then send us out into the world to be salt and light, and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?